From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Michael Bond, and I am here with Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Well, hello. Howdy. All right. So today I want to talk through three more roles of a lead pastor and unpack them a bit. And if we have time, we'll get into some uh, deeper questions. So the first... Did you say lead pastor or elite pastor? (laughs) (laughs) Just the tone of your voice makes me uncomfortable when you say it like that. It's it's very quiet storm all of a sudden. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. Lead elite pastors um, as key recruiters. So when I think about this... This is interesting because I've seen churches where the the lion's share of the recruiting is decentralized to each department, and so I'm a I'm not sure with the author who um, came up with these roles. Like he he did this as part of a think tank. Um, I'm, his name is lost on me. He wrote the book about Untapped Church, the book called Untapped Church. Um, talking about Derek Sanford. Derek Sanford. Yes. Yeah. So he, he, he had listed these as part of a, like a group of people that had gotten with him, and then they came up with these ideas. This one of a key recruiter, eh, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that that's even something that should be falling on, on the lead pastor, or is that something that is better decentralized to each department, or does it depend on the size of the church? I don't think the responsibility of that is back to has to land on the, the lead pastor. And in fact, um, I think the most successful – um, team builders on a staff or in leadership are the ones that take ownership of it themselves. Um, cause in my experience, the, the staff members that are like, Hey, I need you to help me recruit for this with an announcement. You need to say it from stage. And then like, they're typically the people that aren't doing very well. Um, but I also understand that I want to be the number, I want to be part of the funnel, getting people in, you know, um, into the pipeline for, leadership. So I'm talking to a lot of people that our staff are not. And so I'm constantly saying, Hey, where are you getting involved? Oh, you're going through growth track. Have you thought about where you want to be serving? Well, I'm not really sure yet. Have you thought about the kids ministry? You know, like I'm constantly doing that because it's not just about the departments. It's about getting them integrated into the life of the church. So it's not just a utilitarian issue. Like we need more workers. So I'm going to be in the lobby talking to people to get more workers. It's hey, this is about the overall health of the church, and it's about the overall health of the individuals involved as well. Yeah, and I think it may be helpful to differentiate between key recruiter and primary recruiter. Yeah. Right? So the primary recruiters from a day-to-day basis are going to be your department heads, your people who are coordinating volunteers and scheduling volunteers or dream team members, as we call them at Summit, you know, those kind of things. But when we're talking about key recruiter, that's the person who's putting – the, the key members of your team in those positions, in those roles. And almost in every case, that is the lead pastor, right? Uh, at Summit, for example, you know, Mel is responsible for, for the hiring of all of our executive staff, all of our pastoral staff, all the people who are in those what we might call primary uh, recruiting roles. And so from that standpoint, I would say that the lead pastor almost without fail, is the key recruiter on your team, even though they may not be the primary recruiter, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for positions of particular importance, 
we shouldn't be hiring people for those positions or putting them, even installing them in those positions without the approval of the lead pastor. At the very least. And Right. And so, and, and Mel, kind of what I'm getting from what you're saying is you want to be a force for people getting on board, getting deeply involved in the church, and you do that day in and day out, and that's that's constantly like at the forefront of your ministry. But at the same time, you want to empower the people who work for you to do that as well so that yeah. they can kind of take charge of their own department and their own team building and all that sort of thing. Yeah, if, if, if somebody doesn't have enough leaders, which I know right now, there, I don't think there's any church in America that has enough volunteers or dream team or leaders. Um, but if somebody doesn't have enough leaders, it's not my responsibility to get you more leaders. Um, I'm going to help. I'm going to do everything I can, but it's still, the responsibility still falls back on that. Yeah. And it is, it is too easy, uh, for, I think people to fall into the trap of saying, Oh, well, if I had the platform, then I would be able to do that. If I had, you know, if I could just get the right advertising. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but, and there, you know, there might be some truth in the, the fact that the platform adds gravity to what is said. And, and it, and it is, it does give you some measure of exposure, but if your first recourse is to use that almost as an excuse, like, well, if I had a platform, I had the right advertising, then you're never going to develop the skill set that's necessary to be a force for, for recruiting and getting people to be deeply involved in the church. Even if you ascend to a lead pastor role, like you've never had that practice. And so, you know, a few years ago, um, Todd and Kim and I went to a church in, in about an hour and a half from us that they were in needing some help with some stuff. And we went and they were talking about a possible merger. And so we went and we were talking to them and they were in trouble. The church was in trouble and they had some, um, did they, did they buy the, did they already have the sign? Yeah. They did. Yeah. yeah. So they had spent like, I don't know, 10 grand on an led sign in front of their church. And it was like, why'd you do that? And they were like, well, we just felt like that would make all the difference. And it was like, no, all you've done is a- attracted people into your building to see how bad you guys are doing. Like, that's all you've done. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens when we do stage announcements. You know, like, hey, let's do a stage announcement. And then you're going to get some people that are going to show some interest, but they might not be the right people. And then when they do, if you're not ready, if you haven't built up your leadership, if you don't have your, if you're not on your game, then all you've done is attracted to people to show them how, how weak your leadership is or how dysfunctional your department is or whatever it might be. So, oh yeah. Uh, exposure is not a panacea to these kinds of problems. It could certainly cause as much damage as you think it might solve yeah. depending on yeah. the condition yeah. of where you're at. Okay. So when we think about like uh, pastors as gatekeepers against mission drift. Now I think about this at a couple different levels. There's the level of the person who comes up to you maybe on a Sunday and says, Hey pastor, wouldn't it be great if we did this? Wouldn't it be great if we did this kind of project in the community? Wouldn't it be great? Um, and then they kind of want you to do it. They want you to take charge of it or to popularize it or to head it up. There's, there's that level, but then there's also another level of say you have someone on your staff who's really ambitious towards a particular goal. And then that goal starts to have conflict with the general mission of the church. I I can see mission drift happening at both of those levels. So let's talk Mm -hmm. about the first level. Um, What do you do when someone comes to you and says, Hey, I have this great idea. um, But I think that you have the skill set to make it work and I want you to do it. And I want to be a part of it. You want to feel that one? You want me to? I can. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Uh, 
I am I am not someone who says no easily, but with that kind of thing, it's just a no. It's just you know, um, and what I'll and I won't just say no. Nah, I'm not going to do that. But what I'll say is, well, you know, that that's not a bad idea. Maybe God put that on your heart so that you might do something about that, you know. Um, and so just encourage them, like if they feel like that that's something that God has, you know, put on their heart that they need to pursue that. That maybe God's calling them to lead that. Um, but you know, I don't feel like that every good idea means that I have to lead it or Mel has to lead it. Uh, if that were the case, then the church wouldn't be functioning in the way that it should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that those are the easy ones. Um, I mean, gosh, the easy. I mean, the, the first thing I think of men's ministry in our church. Um, I get asked regularly, "When are we going to have a men's ministry? When are we going to have a men's conference?" And it's like, yeah. when we have somebody who's passionate about leading it um, and can lead it well. But until then, we're not going to have a men's ministry just because. Um, but yeah, what you described that that second one where it's like, "Hey, we've got leaders." Because uh, the bigger organization gets, the harder it is to for the pastor to keep uh, the church on point. And so you need help. You have to have people along the way who have a very clear understanding of the mission and vision. Um, and not just like in a cognitive level, but in a heart level where they've lived it, they've experienced it. And that's where long-term leaders are so helpful. And, um, you know, it's good for us that our staff has been around as long as it has, because the longer our staff is around, the more deeply they understand who we are and the easier it is for them to, to keep from drifting. Um, but, um, it's not just staff, it's leaders, it's people within departments. And so the, the, the bigger an organization gets, the more levels it's got, the more essential it is, uh, for that mission and vision to be super clear, um, because it's so easy to drift on the, on the lower levels or in little ways. And yeah. it's easy to go, well, that's not that big a deal. And before we know it, you know, we're one degree off and a year later, we're a mile away from where we're supposed to be. Um, and so, so I think like for us, um, obviously that's something I keep in mind and I look at, but, um, I want to empower our leaders too. you know, the people that have been around the people that have been here to really understand like, okay, that's not really who we are. Like, that's not what we do. And, um, it's, it's, we're at the place now that the staff, a lot of our staff, they don't have to ask me what I think about something. They probably know what I think about it. Like mm-hmm. they probably can guess. I mean, like, you know, Todd's been with us uh, almost the whole time, yeah. um, you know, since 2014. So, I mean, Todd knows me really well. He knows like, oh, Mel is going to love that or Mel will hate that. Like he knows. And so uh, the more of that we have, the easier it is for us to maintain. Yeah. And it's useful too, because people um, maybe who are just coming in can ask others who have been around you for a long time. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. and then they can give accurate answers. And then it's just like, okay, well, then you don't have, you know, 50 people coming into your yeah. office trying to do, trying to yeah. ask you. I mean, I, I, there's actually been more than one occasion where I've been talking to another staff member who was newer on the staff than I was. And I was, I was able to go, yeah, no, Mel's not going to like that. Or yeah, I think Mel's really, I think, I think that's good. You know, <laughs> or yeah, you should go tell Mel that. That'd be awesome. He'll love that idea. <laughs> Abort. In fact, I'll come with you. I want to see. I want to record it. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Okay. So, uh, let's take the same problem into the boardroom. Well, 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 let me back up just a second. I think, I think 
um, it's not inappropriate for us to have somebody who is a point person for that stuff as well, for a, a keeper of the house or whatever you'd want to call it. And maybe it's an official role. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just something you say, hey, I need your help with this. Because maybe you're a lead pastor who you don't have a great deal of eye for attention or attention for detail um, is what I should have said. Eye for attention, attention and eye for detail, <laughs> attention to detail. And so maybe you need some help with that. Maybe you need somebody who you can say, hey, on the weekends, I need you paying attention to this or hey. Hey, when it comes to, you know, and so I would start empowering some people just to say, hey, this is part of your job, you know, to help me make sure we're doing things the way we want to do it. Um, and so I don't think it it is the responsibility of the pastor because if it drifts, it's ultimately up to them. But I think they can employ help and maybe it's a formal position. Maybe it's not. But yeah, sometimes that decentralization is key. Uh, so let's say you are in a boardroom and you're dealing with the leadership of the church elders um, and there's a conflict of interest or there's like, uh, you know, so many want to do one thing. So many want to do something else. What is your strategy in kind of guiding those meetings? Like, do you have any kind of practical advice for pastors on how they can handle those meetings in such a way that won't alienate the you know, maybe the minority dissenting voice, um, or if the majority is kind of starting to drift from where you think that the church should be going, do you have any practical advice in terms of strategy on how to approach those conversations, what to say? Oh, well, and that's such a broad question. It's hard to be specific <clears throat> because every board is different. Um, every board functions differently. Um, and every situation could be different because you know the way my board functions is they're looking at high level decisions they're not looking at in the weeds stuff you know ministry stuff we moved off of ministry stuff in the board a long time ago uh, we leave that to our leaders so you know there are times though that i'll have somebody say hey i heard we're doing this with the kids ministry and I'll have to go, well, that's that's up to Christina. And, you know, that's what we've talked about. That's not what we talk about in this room. Like, this room is not for those kind of decisions. And so we do have to delineate because there are times we could drift and, and they all go to our church. Like, they want, they love our church. They want to be a part of our church. They want to be able to speak into some of that stuff. And we do give them a place to, but it's not in the formal boardroom. It's, hey, you're a member of the church. Talk to the pastor about it. Let's talk through. Was that hard to implement the like a culture of pastor-led church um, like to, <laughs> yes. to get the... Because I, I think there's probably a lot of boards that want to be involved in yes. the ministry element of it. Was that difficult to kind of establish those boundaries? It was terribly, terribly painful, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> uh, board conflict. And, and so some of the people that are listening to this, you don't have a paid staff, but you have a board probably. And board conflict is painful. And we've had some board conflict. Um, and I think any healthy pastor is going to have some board conflict because if you've got the right people in place, they're going to push back on some of your ideas. Um, and so if you never have conflict, it probably means you're not doing anything. It's probably kind of like a marriage in that way, that if you've got two human beings that are alive and have, you know, any kind of vibrancy, you're probably going to have conflict. Um, and so it was real hard because when I came to Summit, the board was making decisions about um, – Things like, hey, we've got a flyer that's going to be in the lobby this weekend. We need to decide on what the font size is going to be and the color of the paper. And they were making those kind of decisions. And um, 
And it caused conflict because when I came, I assumed the board would not function like that. I just assumed, the hey, this church is 500 when we came, so it's going to function in a different way. And so that's how I led the board. And we had conflict. And I realized later, oh, this is why we had conflict. Because I was leading I was leading a board that I didn't have. Um, and so we had to work through that stuff and talk about it. And, um, and one of the analogies uh, I've used, and I ripped it off from somebody, I don't even remember who now, was that, um, you know, a mom and pop grocery shop, uh, grocery store, mom and pop know everything. Mom and pop are stocking the shelves and they're ordering the food and they are, you know, they're unloading the trucks and they are checking people out. They know everything. But the problem is they can never grow beyond the reach of mom and pop. So if they have to function like that, then that's always what they're going to have. Um, you know, in, in our region, we've got Giant Eagle. Um, Giant Eagle does not function like that. The CEO of Giant Eagle has no idea um, what the stock boy is thinking or, you know, mm-hmm. like he is not checking people out. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying those two, the you know, those two entities function very very differently yeah the expectations are different i mean it's not even that they're the same but just scale differently they are totally different right yeah and so even for churches um you've got to decide who are we um and who do we want to be and you've got to scale for that because you're going to run into conflict if you're growing as a church but you're still if you're growing and you're a church of 100 but you're still functioning as a board, like you were a church of 20 or 50, you're, you're going to have conflict and you've got to begin to shift those roles. And so that was one of the most important things we did is begin to just formally shift the roles of the board and go, no, 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 the board is not going to be involved in these things. The board is going to be involved in directional issues in our church. The board functions to protect the pastor and to protect the ministry. Um, and sometimes the, the board protects the pastor from the ministry and sometimes the, the board protects the ministry from the pastor. Um, and so those things work in conjunction, but, um, but they understand our role is not to decide what paint is being put on the walls in the classrooms or, and so that's helped us as we defined those roles better. It helped us function way more efficiently. Yeah, I think it's really important to note the fact that those two entities mm-hmm. and, and the analogy you used was the mom and pop grocery store versus Giant yeah. Eagle. They're just not the same thing. No. And so you can't, like you said, you can't scale the one to fit the other. Yeah. It's just, you know, and so that's, I think that's, that's important to note. Well, and, and I still, I'm not exaggerating. I still have conflict with people who are part of our church when we were 200 that are still part of our church that are frustrated that we function the way we do, that we're just, we look different than we did. And, and that's something pastors have to be aware of that. You're going to have to pastor people through that stuff and love people through that stuff. And it's really hard because, um, they expect the board members to know everything that's going on and, you know, all those things. And it just can't happen as the church grows. Now in our, our board structure, if I'm not mistaken, um, is, pastor nominated congregation elected congregation approved that's correct and they the congregation ratifies it so the board the existing board um, will vet any board members uh, potential board members so they're nominated by me then the existing board will vet them and if the existing board gives them a thumbs up and approves it then they we will take that name to the congregation for a congregational ratification so it's either a yes or no but we don't have an open election where it's like 
hey, I nominate Bob. Bob's here every right. week, and Bob's nice. But they don't know Bob's got a porn addiction. And, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. it's that kind of thing. And so it cleans some things up. And we had some pushback when we changed that at first because, again, we, we it looked like we were taking authority from the people. Um, but I don't know that, in my opinion, it is not a um, – governance – changed biblically several times like in the people of israel and how it worked in church governance like it shifted and there's not one specific form that i think is ideal it all depends on the people at the end of the day but what i see over and over is in scripture whenever you leave things to the popular vote people usually get it wrong mm-hmm. um you know because people would have they would have left the wilderness and gone back to Egypt in slavery mm-hmm. if it was left to popular vote. Um, Jesus was crucified on a popular vote. Um, and so we see people getting it wrong often. Um, and so it's not to say that the pastor can't get it wrong either, but I think we're wrong to think the church should function as a representative democracy like, right. like the country yeah. does. Um, the board's function is not to represent the, the the desires and wants and needs of the people to the pastor the pastor should be in relationship with the people that they can represent that themselves. The board's job, in my opinion, is to, is to represent the vision that God has given the church to the people and help, help push and propel that vision forward. So that was a really long answer. Um, that was good though. I mean, it's like, there's so much substance there because it's like, when you're setting up a board, say you're maybe you just came into a church as a pastor and you're trying to figure out your church governance. Um, you shouldn't feel bad about rejecting the Americana element of, yeah. you know, well, I just, I want to let them vote. I want to let, cause that's the way we do it. Like you said, in, in, the, in the country and it's yeah. worked reasonably well. Um, but it just comes down to who's leading who. Mm-hmm. And if you want to take responsibility for church growth and the church doing well, you also have to take the authority of leadership. Mm-hmm. And that means that the people have to lose it to some degree. Yeah. And so yeah, and, and every denomination is different. There's some denominations that are set up on congregational, um, you know, authority that the pastor has very, very limited authority and the congregation has the authority. And so if you're in a system like that, you can't fight it. That's just the system, you know, the denomination is in. And then there are some systems like ours that seem to give the pastor much more authority than the congregation. And so that's where you've just got to understand what you're getting into when you get into it. Okay, so uh, this next role, this this third role, protector of church unity and identity, has a little bit of overlap. But let's just imagine for a second that we live in a politically divided world. Um, I, I don't know if I can. Uh, I don't know. It's a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I think of protector of church unity and identity, that's kind of the first thing that comes to my mind. Obviously, there's vision wrapped up in that. There's mission drift wrapped up in that because mm-hmm. you're thinking about church identity. But a lot of that is ideology. A lot of that is ideological divide. So how do we, and this, this, this horse may have been beaten to death by podcast leadership podcasts since 2019, but we're (laughs) going to hit it one more time. Come on. Um, How do you walk through a climate where ideological divide is so deep and is so tenacious when you're drafting your sermons, do you think about it when you're speaking to people in the lobby, do you think about it? Um, at what level is this operating in your, the way that you conduct yourself in ministry and trying to understand and account for 
the ideological possession and trying to keep unity within the church? Or is it just a matter of like, you know what, this is a pruning season. We're going to sort the wheat from the chaff. Here we go. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have a good answer for that other than to say, look, man, like if, if you are not focused on what the scripture says enough that like, well, part of what I was, as you were asking the question, you said, do you have to think about that when you're, when you're writing a sermon? If, if my political leanings, and not that, not that my understanding of Scripture doesn't influence my po- politics, it does, right? But if, if I'm so focused on my political positions that I have to, like, weed them out of my sermons, in my opinion, at least, I'm probably not focused enough on the biblical narrative and what scripture says. If I just teach what scripture says, people can deduce their politics for themselves, right? Um, Because it will inform our politics. Yeah. Uh, But, but scripture is, you know, that needs to be my focus. And if I'm worried about my politics rather than being worried about the scripture, I think maybe I'm, I'm, you know, in the wrong wrong place to start with that's 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 what comes to mind for me at least yeah and i think there's a place for us to talk about some of those kind of things um in the context of a sermon but i've heard a lot of sermons over the last few years that it it felt like i had a political agenda and i needed some scripture to support it um you know that people preached it was like wow this this doesn't feel like the heart of what christ was after Um, and that feels, you know, a little judgmental, but, um, but, uh, when it comes to unity to, to, and you know, we, we started talking about the pol- political thing and that's obviously part of it, but when it comes to unity, it, it really is less about, um, it's less about, um, what we do and more about what we choose not to do. And so it's not about, Hey, we're going to do this and this and this and this and this. And then, but it's more about going, okay, here's what's really important. Like distilling everything down and not feeling like I've got to talk about everything and address every single issue because Lord knows pastors felt so much pressure. And I know even I did over the last couple of years, like, Okay, there was another police shooting. Do I address this from stage or not? Um, okay, hey, do I address this political issue that came up or not? Like, does it rise to the level that I feel like I need to say something for the health and wellness of our congregation? Um, that at the end of the day, I, I just felt like, man, it's more important instead of trying to figure out what do I address, figure out like, okay, here's the most important things. We're going to distill this down to this. We're going to primarily focus on Christ. And if, if Christ is my top affection, then everything else is going to fall into place. And so if we can, because the biggest issues we've had is people that have put their ideology over following Christ and they, they put their patriotism over following Christ. They've put their political party over following Christ. So I just feel like unity happens if we can get people to love the right things well. And so that's where it's like, okay, I'm stop trying, stop trying to figure out, which sermon I can preach this week to, you know, unlock the magic code for everybody and help people to feel magically better. But it's like, okay, we're going to work through this junk. But at the end of the day, it really comes back to Christ crucified. 
and that's it. Um, and that sounds overly simplistic, yeah, but, but it's not. Yeah, that's what we've kind of held to and just said, we're not going to address every political thing that comes down the pipe. We just won't. That's exhausting. And um, and that's not why the church was built. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to remember, too, that unity doesn't mean uniformity. Right. Uh, and if if we if we have a culture and, and maybe you've been around a church culture that expected uniformity, well, man, that's. Uh, it's oppressive, honestly, if I really want to put a word to it. Uh, and and you never achieve unity yeah. when you do that. Because even if you get people to, you know, to toe the line, so to speak, you breed uh, rebellion, right? Mm-hmm. You breed uh discontent you breed bitterness in people's hearts because they feel like that they're having to line up to something not because they feel a particular deep conviction about it but because yeah. in order to be accepted into the community i have to you know and it's not that there aren't you know norms that the scripture talks about that mm-hmm. that god expects us to line up to but but we can have unity around those things while allowing you know for people to be at different places in their walk with Christ, to grow into, you know, uh, maturity and all of those kinds of things. And so I think it's important for us to remember that too, because we can maintain unity if we uh, are a people who, well, who speak truth in love, right? Yeah. Who have grace and truth yeah. uh, and, and allow space for those things. It's when we, you know, like, man, I grew up in a, in a place where like, you know, uh, well, there was just a, a lot. There was a lot of legalism, and so the moment someone gave their life to Christ, it was like, okay, now you gotta, you you gotta change how you dress. You gotta change this. You gotta change this. You gotta change this. I remember one time, for example, there was a guy who he drove a beer truck, and our pastor. I, I say our pastor, the pastor. It wasn't my church, but the pastor who was there told him, "You have to quit your job," like, you know, mm-hmm. and he like. How am I going to support Yikes. my family? Like, you know, I can look for a new job, but mm-hmm. I can't just go quit my job. Yeah. But, the, you know, the pastor was like, well, no, like, like that is, that's against God if you continue to deliver beer, right? And, and so I don't know where I'm going with all that other than to say unity can be had in those kind of situations without there being that kind of like rigid, like, it's got to be this way. Everybody's got to be uniform. We all got to look the same and walk the same and talk the same and be the same. And, uh, well, but and, and differences are threatening um, and, and individually, like in just relationship. That's why we tend to uh, be attracted to like people, right? People that are in a socioeconomic class, people that are tend to look like us. Um, and so differences scare us at times. And even for pastors or leaders, Sometimes when somebody comes with a dissenting voice, it's scary. Uh, it makes us nervous because what's that mean for us? And we hate conflict, let's be honest. But sometimes those dissenting voices are some of the healthiest to have in our congregation. And some of those differences of opinion can help us flesh out. Why do we really do what we do and believe what we believe and say what we say? And is there room in the kingdom, uh, not in the broader kingdom, but even in our kingdom, in our church? Is there room in the church for people that look different and act different and maybe aren't um, fully sanctified yet. And, you know, um, and so I think if 
I think we can have a, a high a high sense of unity, even with lots of diversity in the congregation, yeah. if we're if we're pursuing health, if we're prioritizing the right things, if we're, you know, those kind of things. Because we see it in the New Testament, right? Paul was fighting for unity over and over and over. We see it. Um, and the churches were very, very, very diverse um, backgrounds and all the different things that we're dealing with today. They were dealing with in the first century. Um, and so let's go back to what does Paul say? What is he saying to the church in order to promote unity in the church? Um, you know, hey, look out for each other, protect each other, provide for each other, um, you know, prioritize Christ above all else. I mean, it's those kind of things that if we'll do the same thing, like we're going to see unity in our church. So if we're if we're walking down, trying to pin down whether or not a congregation is walking down a path toward uniformity versus a path toward unity, maybe one of the things we could say then is that uniformity, the path to uniformity happens when we try to unite around the wrong things, like around things that we really shouldn't be, uh, we try to conform around the wrong mm-hmm. things. Yeah, and yeah. then the pathway to unity would be, okay, we're going to keep we're going to keep our eyes on Christ and that's what we're going to unite under Christ. We're going to unite under the, you know, biblical health, that sort of thing. Um, and then the rest of it is just going to become secondary. And so then mm-hmm. that's where the sort of the difference is. If you're trying to, if you're, if you're looking at the health of a congregation and trying to determine which direction they're going in, um, because sometimes like conformity can look like unity. Like mm-hmm. it can, you can think yeah. like, Oh, our, our church is strong and they, you know, they're all just like each other. And, but uh, you know, they might not be united as much as they are just, in lockstep mm-hmm. on all the wrong things. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say this wrong, and I don't remember who the original person. The, you know, th- there's the whole idea of in the essentials. Yeah. Uh, how does that go? In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in the, uh, I can't remember the third level now. Can you remember? Do you remember? No, it I don't at all? remember. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll edit that in and post. Okay. Yeah. There we go. But you know, the idea being that yes, there are some things that we hold with a closed hand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There are some things that are non-negotiable, like the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and the Trinity and a, a literal physical bodily resurrection from the dead. You know, there yeah. there are things that are foundational that are the bedrock of our faith and those we hold with a close hand. There are things that we hold that are important to us, but we still hold with an open hand. Like you, you may be come from a spirit-filled background, and there are some. In, in in you know in those circles who would say you must speak in tongues in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are others who would say no. The you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit and then tongues will manifest later or the gifts will manifest later. Yeah. And so you hold those things with an open hand. Those are, aren't things we disfellowship over, but they are important and they're worth our consideration and even for us to have conversation about and over and all those things. And then there's a third level even that's really about preference. And with those things. It's really not even worth arguing about. It's really not even worth you know spending our time with for the most part. Uh, but a lot of times, especially when we're talking about cases of uniformity, what happens is that we start to major on those preference things that are out in that third mm-hmm. layer uh, mm-hmm. rather yeah, than yeah. the things that are should be held in our closed hand. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, so there's a decision that has to be made here hypothetically. Um, and I want to know the answer to this. A, a pastor as a protector of unity, the, the pastor, should the pastor make efforts to protect unity at the expense of truth? 
No. Never. No. Why are you even asking that question? So, well, you so, know better than that. Come on now. Well, because I, I, this is this is going to be a crossroads, I it think, is. that a lot of <clears throat> pastors are going to be running into. I have a 36-page white paper from Davos in 2016 on values and economics that talks a lot about like integrating the faith into the World Economic Forum. And so what they're realizing is that... Um, it's too easy for pastors to ignore the political level. Mm -hmm. So we need to go deeper. We need to go down to the substrate. We need to go down to the thing that informs the political level. We need to get theological and force them to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's going to be um, scenarios wherein um, the question becomes, do I allow my church to fracture? Mm -hmm. Do I allow this church to fracture in defense of the truth? Yeah. And the answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely. Because it comes back to what what are we called to do as pastors? And in our culture, the the sense seems to be that our job as a pastor is to build the biggest church we possibly can. And we would never say that, but that's that's what a lot of pastors feel. That's what I'm supposed to do. Make this church as big as possible. Um, but that's not really what we're supposed to do. We're right. supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right? That's what Scripture tells us. And um, in the midst of that, those those things, a lot of times, they those overlap. As I'm, a, <clears throat> excuse me, equipping saints, our church probably is going to grow. But what if it's not? And what if what if you know there comes a day when our church does shrink? And but if I keep equipping saints to do the work of ministry, then it doesn't matter. If I'm still preaching truth, biblical gospel truth, then that's really all that matters. And that's easy to say right now. It's going to be real hard when the day comes when those issues arise and um, and we're dealing with that. But at, at the end of the day, God is not going to stand. <clears throat> we're not going to stand before God and he's going to rank us by the size of our churches, right? right. And he, what we're going to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at the end of the day, we, all we need to do is be faithful to do what God's called us to do. Preach the word of God with integrity and fidelity and let the chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about meekness and gentleness because maybe perhaps no. this process. <laughs> there we go. That's uh, perfect. Uh, we can know what it is by knowing what it's not. So we're off to a great start. Uh, I want to know what it means to be meek and what does Christ mean when he says that the meek shall inherit the earth? Okay. You want to go first? Uh, this is uh, just for the record. This is probably not going to be very in depth because uh, I didn't, if you told us what we were going to be talking about on the podcast, I was not paying attention. I would have done <laughs> a little homework, but, um, but yeah, I've always heard, maybe you have too, Todd, meekness described as strength under control. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's one of the things you default to, that, that Jesus was meek, but he was not weak. He was a strong leader. Um, he, the same Jesus that turned tables over in the, in you know, the money changers tables over in the temple uh, was the same Jesus who welcomed kids to come to him. And, you know, so... He had he he was very multifaceted and but he could not be described as weak. So I, I kind of like that to some degree. Yeah. It feels again oversimplified, but yeah, I think that that's probably a good way to describe what biblical meekness is to some degree. Yeah, I think so, and I, I think it's um, it, it it really is about having the ability to be gracious mm-hmm. in uh, in moments when yeah. maybe you don't want to be. Or in moments, even when uh, p- 
people might think justifiably that you shouldn't be. I think it's it's that thing. Uh, it's it's Jesus uh, answering the Pharisees, um, knowing that they were attempting to corner mm-hmm. him and trap him, uh, and not only answering them, but answering them in ways that were revelatory, answering them them in ways that it were they willing to listen would be helpful to them uh and so and would you know would honor honor the father and be beneficial to you know the pharisees so i think that's really more about what it is than um what we think of when you know mother mary meek and mild you know that Mm -hmm. kind of thing it's it's not that it's not a softness um other than the idea of a soft answer turning away wrath, maybe. Yeah. You know, but it's it's not a softness in terms of how we answer, but the uh, the spirit with which we answer. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, like, I like the idea of stability here. Um, so when you think of something that's strong, you might think of like a rock, or, you know, but, but a rock just sits there. Like it's not doing anything. It's just kind of there. Um, but it's it's also strong, and then and then I think about okay, what else is strong? Aggressive people are sometimes strong, mm-hmm. but aggressive people are also volatile. Mm-hmm. Like they're just you know you can't, they're not predictable. They're up, yeah, down, yeah. sideways. Um, and so when I think about meekness, I think like it takes meekness to get hate mail after a sermon. It takes meekness to deal with someone who feels passionately about something that they're wrong about mm-hmm. and they're trying to argue their case with you, yeah. you know, in the lobby or somewhere. Yeah. And so I want to know maybe like, what are some specific areas in your own lives where you've noticed that meekness benef- benefited you or helped carry you through a situation where uh, maybe needless misery was averted, if that makes sense? Hmm. Well, hmm. um, and I, and I like your definition, Todd. Of, you know, or, or mentioning humility, but um, I think I think one way meekness helps pastors is by promoting relationship, promoting through being humble, through not having to be the first, not having to be the most recognized, not having to. I think that promotes relationship, um, and that's. I mean, I'm going to sound like the opposite of meek right now when I say this, but like, you know. Summit's the biggest church in town, and my goal is for that I would not act like I pastor the biggest church in town, that I want to treat every pastor in this community like they're my peer, and they're my friend, and they're, and um, and I think that's probably a level of meekness to some degree that I could just go, hey, but when that happens, it promotes friendship and relationship mm-hmm. and health and unity and all those kind of things, um, and I don't think any of our staff or any of the leaders in our community would say I'm a weak leader at all. I think, you know, they might describe me as meek, maybe, I don't know, but that promotes relationship and health and unity and all those kind of things. So it is, it is deeply useful for pastors to develop a heart like that. Um, and, and again, make it sound like I've got it mastered. Like I'm so meek. You need to be meek like me. I got it nailed. It sounds like the title of a good book, Meek Like Me. Um, it, it really is interesting to me how, you know, knowing the concept, like I know the concept and yet still on a, like a day, almost a daily basis, it feels backwards. It mm-hmm. feels like it shouldn't work in the mm-hmm. world. Yeah. Putting yourself last, like 
sacrificing yourself, lowering yourself, all of that stuff seems to lead to other people elevating you, Yeah, which is weird because you'd think that. Well, and, and I'll give you an example. Um, and I, I might've mentioned that here before, but since the time I came to summit and Todd could attest to this, but we, whenever I meet somebody, if they've come from another church, if I meet them in the lobby and I'm like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. How long have you been coming to Summit? Oh, this is my first time. Oh, great. What brought you to Summit? Well, we've been looking for a church. Were you going to another church? I'm like, this is the script. This is the exact <laughs> thing I say. Um, have you been going to another church? Well, yeah, sort of. Where are we going to church? Oh, we were going to X church, whatever church. And if I know the pastor, I will call the pastor by name. Oh, my gosh. I love Pastor Joe. Joe's fantastic. Uh, what's making you decide to look for another church? Well, um, we just, whatever the thing is, does Joe know you're thinking about leaving the church and looking? Well, no, I would really encourage you to talk to Joe about it. And our goal would be for you to reconcile with them and to get connected with them. And that's my heart, right? Um, but what I've heard is people have said, I loved hearing that. Like that made me want to be a part mm-hmm. of the church. Because I I don't hear pastors say stuff like that. And it's not that – I'm not trying to be manipulative, right? Like, But there is something about hearing me say, I want you to go back to your church and fix it. I want you – you know, if this isn't the right church for you, I want to help you find the right church. Like those kind of statements um, are, are statements to me. They're statements of strength. Like, hey, we're secure. Like if you come here, great. If you don't, great. We want you to find the right place. And that's attractive to people. And so in that security, in that stability, um, it's attractive, but it also is not intended to, it's not a growth strategy or, you know what I mean? And so, so I think that's an area that as a church, we try to have strength, but we're humble about it and just go, Hey, there are lots of good churches in town. Go find the right church. And people like hearing that. Yeah, I, I just I don't even really know how this works um, because we don't use this in sales. Mm-hmm. Like the sales seems like the opposite of this. Like mm-hmm. you're not going to sell very many cars if you're telling someone, "Hey, yeah. you know, you really you could buy this Ford, but honestly, Tesla's pretty good too, and they have a sale right now." You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like kind of. So one of the things Matthew Henry says about this that I thought was pretty fascinating is um, because it's a beatitude. Mm-hmm. If you practice meekness essentially um, wins you divine favor. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there's something happening at because people who might be listening to this, maybe there's people who aren't even Christians who are listening to this and they're thinking, okay, I just want people to love me better. Like lots yeah. of people want to be loved. You know, they want to be included. They want to be part of a community. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, I've watched people try to just pitch themselves everywhere they go. And it's, it's just disastrous. Yeah. Like they, they, they get rejected time after time after time. And yet the pitch still tends to work in other areas of life that don't seem to involve like human relationship that don't seem to involve things which might be said to be eternal. Mm-hmm. So there's like a, there's like a spiritual hat. Uh, it's a trans- principle. Yeah. It's like yeah. It's something happening. Yeah. that's not explicable in worldly terms when you are meek. And so if you yeah. need motive to be meek, it just, well, first of all, just try it and look at the evidence, but I can't explain to you how it works. I just don't know. Well, you said in, in sales, but um, there were two years I worked as a corporate recruiter while we were helping plan a church in, in Texas. And um, and I was not, I'm not a salesperson, like uh, in the strictest sense. Um, and so I got 
hired and I would, I was doing recruiting and I had a client that was a great client for me. I mean, I was getting money every month from this client because we were placing people. And she called me one day and said, Hey, I'm looking for, and I don't even remember what the role was she was looking for. And I just told her, I was like, man, we don't do well with that. And I can take that and I can try to find it for you. But I said, we, we don't, we don't fill that role very well. And I told her, I said, Hey, call so-and-so. And And I told her another recruiting company. I said, call them and tell them what you're looking for. They kill that. They always have a pipeline of people. And I hung up the phone and the guy sitting in the cubicle next to me was like, are you out of your mind? Like, are you crazy? Like if, if our boss or her name was Darla, Darla, here's that you did that. She's going to kill you. And I was like, well, it was the right thing to do. And, and Anyway, and I felt convicted of it. This is the right thing to do. I'm going to help my client. And a few days later, she called me back, and she was like, hey, you know what? They helped me, and I just want you to know you've got my business even more now than before. I appreciate the fact that you were looking out for me, and you didn't just tell me, you know, oh, yeah, we can fill that, and then maybe you could, maybe you couldn't. And anyway, but even that, in that situation, it was a sales environment where I lost a sale, but I didn't lose a sale. It Mm -hmm. built me more goodwill with the person in the long run. That's yeah. interesting. So the rapport, yeah, and the, the the human relationship ends up being more beneficial than the actual transaction in that moment. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. pretty good. Uh, this may take our conversation in a little bit of a different way, but I've, back, I've been studying in Galatians 5. You know, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is meekness or it's translated gentleness in mm-hmm. most modern translations. Uh, but it's interesting in that uh, the idea there is that Meekness is basically the opposite of despair, anger, wrath, impatience, anxiety, fear, and envy. Mm. So, uh, and that it's a, uh, a a state of being where you don't blame God for undesirable circumstances or get angry with God when things don't go your way. And of course, that translates to other people as mm. well. But it really is more about... Um, well, you said something about stability earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Meekness really is that state of stability. So I don't get overly uh, animated or angry when things don't go my way or when someone does something that I don't like because the the fruit of the Holy Spirit in me is that I am stable, I am yeah. secure, and I can respond with gentleness. I can respond in kindness. I don't have to become anxious or fall into despair or be angry or be, you know. Uh, and so uh, that, that then really f- feeds into and breeds these the outcomes that we've been talking about. So it's really that thing that informs those things. It's not the thing itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, maybe the reason why this idea of being meek gets misunderstood so frequently in in the culture, in the world, is because it's actually really hard to apprehend what it means to be meek without also knowing Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's so, yeah. you know, if you try to define it outside of Christ, mm-hmm. it's it doesn't make sense a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, so, man, but it's so powerful. It's such a powerful thing yeah. to, to do. And it's weird because it, it is actually the state of, of controlling your power or sheathing it. And mm-hmm. yet it and yet God honors it. And so there we go. So one last thing before we wrap this up, um, this kind of is in line with meekness. One of the things that we say here is that we shouldn't make a point at the expense of making a difference, but I want to know what you do or what we do when it seems like the point is the thing that makes the difference. 
Be more specific if you can okay, help me so, understand that better. And we might be able to trace this back to the idea of um, letting go of unity or holding loosely onto unity and service to truth. But let's just say that, um, well, you know, the, the sermon that you preached last weekend, mm-hmm. you, I would say that you made some points that the point itself makes the difference. Whereas, and even, even though you're taking a risk, um, you're taking a risk preaching the sermon because you're, you're taking a risk in burning down rapport that you might be able to use to make a difference. Yeah. But the point is too valuable to lose in that situation. So how do you, maybe the answer to this is just truth, but how do you from person to person, um, draw the line between when I'm going to apply that principle of, I don't want to make a point at the expense of making a difference. Yeah versus just going forward and making the point? Uh, I think it comes back to that idea of biblical truth. Uh, Do I have to sacrifice biblical truth for unity? And if I do, then it's not real unity. Um, I would rather have unity among people with biblical truth, even if it's a smaller number of people, than a fake kind of unity where I dodge tough topics or, you know, um, I, I mean, there are people that would still be in our church today if I hadn't confronted sin in their lives personally, you know, if I hadn't sat down with them and said, Hey, I see this in you and this is not healthy. It's not good. They would still be in our church today, but because I made a decision and said, Hey, we're going to have a hard conversation, even at the risk of relationship or attendance or whatever it is. And I, I don't know, to me, that's probably where I would draw the line. And, um, and even for the, the stuff we talked about this last weekend, um, you know, I, I feel like the, some of the things we talked about were encroaching into the church, big C church, but our church, even to the degree enough, it was like, okay, it's time to address some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we have to, if I don't, I'm just burying my head in the sand. And so I think, I think every pastor's got to figure out where that line is and when it comes to preaching sermons or having one-on-one conversations or whatever it might be. But that'd probably be where the line is for me. I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that, Todd? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think we've, we've all seen people who make a point, but don't make a difference, <laughs> at least not a positive one. Maybe. I mean, I think, I think we always make a difference, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but it could be a negative difference rather than a positive one. Right. So take, for example, uh, the, you know, the the preacher on the soapbox on the corner with his sign that says you're all going to hell. And he's, you know, and people come by who are going to hell, right? People come by who don't know Jesus, who need rescue in their lives. But the tenor and the attitude with which that truth is presented, well, it doesn't produce the fruit, the desired fruit. It may actually produce the opposite. So they may have made a point I mean, they, they maybe even, like I've seen a, the, the kind of apologist kind of thing, like the, at least the, the street apologists, yeah. right? Who, you know, and man, they, bazinga, right? They got them. Oh, yeah, you, you made a point, <laughs> right? But the person that they made the point to just goes away angry, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, so I think some of it's that ability to discern, is this the time for me to say this? Right. 
or do I need to walk in relationship with this person maybe a little bit longer? And 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 certainly don't avoid saying the the thing that needs to be said. Don't avoid the the point that needs to be made. Don't avoid the truth that needs to be shared. But know when to share it. Uh, and so so you know if if you know if if saying this in this moment and and sometimes you can't avoid this but if saying something right now results in a fracture of relationship and me not being able to to speak into this person's life again well have we reached a point in our relationship where where that where that needs to be done where there needs to be a line drawn in the sand yeah. because because there will come a point where it needs to be said right but we need to have discernment to know when so that the holy spirit uh you know uh, well, so that we know that we're being led of the Spirit, so that yeah. we know, like, Lord, if if this results in a in a break in relationship, I'm trusting that you are are leading here. But if I'm saying if I'm saying the if I'm making the point so that I look smart or so that I look good, I, I'm doing it for the wrong reason. Yeah. If I'm making the point because I've I've walked with this person in love and I know that God wants to 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 call this out in their life. Well, then then I'm probably on pretty firm ground to go ahead and make that point. You know? Yeah, I think that like uh, facts often don't matter as much as truth. And that sounds weird to say, and it'll take us too long to unpack it. But just by way of illustration, few things should matter more to us than what happened before the Big Bang. But almost no one thinks about it. Mm-hmm. And they would say that they don't think about it because it doesn't matter. Um, so even people who profess to believe in that type of worldview, um, just articulating that to them on the street and making a point and making a fact, presenting a fact, they may stop thinking about it in the next 10 minutes, even though factually few things should matter more to them in terms of meta narrative than that. Yeah. Um, but it just doesn't seem to hit home. And I think that's because there's a distinction between facts and truth as a whole. Um, do you, I, I just need to know this really quick. Does your metric change when you're making a point in self-defense? Um, so say someone's slandering you, someone's saying things that are not true about you. Um, does your metric it shouldn't, change? but it does. I, um, and <clears throat> yeah, and this is where meekness comes in, right? Um, I, like there've been some times I've slammed the doors on people, um, you know, figuratively when they were attacking me, attacking my character, whatever it was that it was like, okay, you know, like bring it on, you know? And it was like, that's not the heart of Christ. That's not the way he would have responded in that moment. Um, but so it shouldn't, but it does at times. And that's something, um, I tend to be, um, I'm not physically violent, but I am (laughs) verbally violent, you know? And I will inflict violence on people with my words if I'm not careful sometimes. And so, I mean, I can think of a couple situations uh, since I've been here that, you know, before service, somebody was letting me have it about something. And it was like, well, I'm going to end this real fast. And it's like, oh, we never saw them again. And uh, it was like, okay, was I wrong? No. Was I righteous? No. Um, so. Yeah. Oh, man, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. well, uh, I think we uh, did a pretty good job today. And so <laughs> yeah. that remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it lands. Thank you guys for joining us for the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. And we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.